This is a No Land in Sight podcast production. Welcome to Is That Movie Still Good? The podcast where we take a movie from the past, give it a thorough rewatching, and ask the question, is that movie still good? Today, we're going to get out our double-breasted suits, maybe grab a fedora, hop on a plane to Vegas, and we're going to cash those futures tickets that we got. Now, how did that all get here? We're going to get into that tonight as we go back to 1991 and revisit Bugsy. So, get your dice ready, get your lady on your arm, get a cocktail in your hand, settle in for Bugsy. Is that movie still good? Welcome back, friends. We have had a bit of a hiatus for a couple of weeks, but we are back for episode two of this season. We are going to go back where it all started, back to 1991. Uh, Nate, did you realize this is the third time we're going to visit 1991 for a film? Uh, Yes. Uh, When we start talking Oscar comparison, very familiar uh, names, movies, those types of things. And um, just as a reminder, still have no interest in seeing The Prince of Tides. No, I still (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that. Still not going to watch it. (laughs) I was doing the Oscar rundown and thought, what the hell? This is still on there. Uh, we'll be there forever. But. Yeah. So anyway, d- before we get into it, we appreciate everybody that's been listening. Um, we've gotten our first listens in Russia, so uh, that's exciting, I think. I don't know. Um, How many countries are we up to these I, days? I, we got. I, it's a large number. I don't know, but we, we got Russia. We picked up a couple more European countries in the last little bit. So, uh, you know, getting some worldwide listens. Mostly our friends in America are listening, and we appreciate you guys. So keep downloading, um, subscribe, rate, review, uh, check out the, the website, follow us on Instagram. Um, I know I have not been posting as much, but uh, would like to do a little bit more of that. Um, you may have seen a photo on Instagram of a little trip we took uh, out to the woods to do a little whitewater rafting, which was pretty fun. Took the families and— uh, Didn't we go there to film a, a sequel to Deliverance? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Jim played the Ned Beatty part. I'm just gonna say, <laughs> but 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 no method acting. Um, yeah. Speaking of bet babies, yeah, babies. I, I, how many times do you think I'm gonna call War Baby Ned Beatty <laughs> during, the, during this pod? Um, well, it, it's it's totally in play. You know, Ned Beatty uh, hails from our city here in Louisville too. Speaking of babies, uh, yeah. Well, um, they're twins, I think, aren't they? Uh, are they? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, identical. Yes. <laughs> So, Bugsy, 1991, um, what do you remember about this one, Nate? Let's start with, with where we always start. What do we yeah, remember? Yeah, you know, I, I, don't think I, pro- I don't think I saw this one in the theater. It came out New Year's Eve, yeah, 1991. Yeah. So really a 1992 movie, and as we move through it, it's one of those movies that was really kind of set up for Oscar. Oscars, yes. Oscar type stuff. So I, I doubt, I don't think I saw it in the theater. Probably one of those that I picked up like when I got home, because this is my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. So I probably picked it up on HBO when I was home for summer, something like that. Might have gone out and you know rented the old VHS. But I remember it being cool. Very you know, cool. Because really, um, and I also remember it being, I you know, I, I'd seen Bonnie and Clyde yep. before. But Warren Beatty really wasn't in a lot of stuff that I really liked. Right. And I don't think I had seen Dick Tracy yet, even though it came out a year before. And But even so, there's such similar movies as far as his shtick. Um, you know, I just thought it was cool. Um, you know, you had the whole, I think by the time I saw it, him and Annette Benning were already a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was that kind of romanticism part, aspect, which was a big Hollywood tabloid thing. Right, right. Uh, but just overall, yeah, a cool movie. Plus, plus and it's an origin movie, right? 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, origin story. It's a, a great story of how Vegas came to be Vegas and um, a, a portrayal of real-life gangsters, real-life mobsters. So it's a really interesting story uh, from that standpoint. Um, I, I did remember – I didn't see it in the theater, but I do remember renting it on VHS and watching it with my roommate um, and at, in college at the time because we were into movies and stuff. And I had – I, with you, had seen some Warren Beatty films, was not a huge Warren Beatty fan, but I had seen Dick Tracy and really liked it. And at the moment, this felt a little bit like, in my immaturity, a little bit like an extension of that character, mm-hmm. even though watching it from a greater distance, it's much deeper and more complex and, and way better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about Ishtar before. Yep. Um, and, and really, after he bombed on Ishtar, he had a couple years where he didn't do much. And really, the whole 80s. I mean, he did Reds in 81, mm-hmm. which was his um, opus or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's his uh, his one Oscar win was for Best Director in Reds. Right, right. Now, you, you know he's um, only one of two people to be nominated for acting, directing, writing, and producing in the same film. Yeah, so who was the other one? Orson Welles. Okay. And, and Beatty actually did it twice. Mm-hmm. Well, you look at his Oscar nominations. He's got 14 total nominations, and you're like, what? That, that's like Meryl Streep level, right? Except for so many of them are all packaged in the same film because he produced a lot of his stuff, so he got Best Picture uh, nominations, plus some acting, plus directing, uh, like you said, writing. So he's had a lot of Oscar nominations on a few films. Yeah, and Heaven Can Wait was the other movie in addition to Reds that, that kind of hit the the whatever you want to call it, uh, with all four nominations. But we'll, we'll come back to, to Beatty and his kind of uh, where he fits into the, <coughs> yeah. excuse me, the, 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 whatever you want to call it, the Hollywood. The Hollywood hierarchy, if you right, will. Right, right. Um, because, you know, he has kind of everything as far as, you know, the family connections, you know, marrying another Hollywood star. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an interesting story. But back just to, to Bugsy um, in general, uh, this was also, I think, a very well done movie. Absolutely. Um, cinematography was great. Um, the score was great. Um, and it almost, in my opinion, overshadowed the movie itself. The story plot and the characters and the acting, just the, the visual of it all. The stylization the, yeah. of it. And I, I got that too. You know, you watch it and there's so much about it that just has this beauty and cool factor. You mentioned the sto- the score Ennio Morricone, one of my favorites. I didn't realize he had um, composed that until I watched it this time. I didn't either. And, and you know, and I, I, I was looking through all the things that he's done, which is just unbelievable amount of work, both in Hollywood movies and everything else. And then I just got to, he did the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, no of course. Said. That's no, it. No that's said. it. Right? No like, said. That's it, it. It. Just, is that not one of the best scores? I'll take Maybe take out John Williams and Star yeah. Wars stuff and E.T. And the, take out the John Williams yeah, stuff. Right. Is the good, the bad, and the ugly the best Hollywood score of all time? Well, it's totally in there. You know, we talked yeah. about that one when we talked about Rocky. And right. some of those were Godfather. like, if you, if you have some iconic melody, even if it's like, a, a you know, a couple of bars, like if you if you got it, you've you've hit gold and he's done that uh for sure on that one yeah and um it, it was nominated this particular bugsy was actually had the most nominations oscar nomination nominations in the 92 oscars yes had 10 mm-hmm. everything from you know best actor two best supporting actors best cinematography best director best original score best picture best screenplay mm-hmm and as you mentioned, it won two, and kind of going back to what we were talking about a second ago. Art but- direction, set direction, and uh, costume design. Right. I, I was watching it. I, before I even looked it up, I'm like, I, 
this had to have won for some of this, you know, artistic design business. And yeah, and it it hit the, um, you know, hit hit the gold, the jackpot there. But to your point too about just how glamorous and stylized it was, you know, like there are scenes in it where, um, and and I watched this with my wife the other day, and she um, was like, "This is my favorite Warren Beatty movie, just because he's so handsome and so." glamorous and uh i felt that way about annette benning too being very glamorous everybody in this like the scene where he meets annette benning and and she's walking off the the hollywood uh set and she lights up her cigarette and like i mean like it's just 1940s oh glamour. absolutely so the, so the way this movie starts you know bugsy's obviously a gangster and he works for lucky luciano and and he sent to L.A. just to do some basic gangster work, right? You know, uh, clean up some, uh, you know, gambling houses and all that kind of stuff. But he's also a big, um, he's in, it's a big movie buff. Like uh, one of his best friends uh, that he hooks up with in Hollywood and spends a lot of time with is uh, the character played by Joe Mantegna, and I always pronounce his name. Yeah, right. Joe Mantegna, yeah. And, and he plays um, uh, an actor, you know, a real actor, right. and, and that they were, that you know, was a real relationship at that point. And 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 Bugsy gets to visit Hollywood sets. And they're going around L.A. And it also very much reminded me of that kind of classic L.A. movie, too, mm-hmm. whether it's a Chinatown yes. or La La Land or something like that. It had all those same elements mm-hmm. uh, of, of the, you know, old, whatever, post-World War II L.A. as mm-hmm. it's blooming into what would become Hollywood and all the, you know all those types of things. Um, but the thing with Bugsy is... He's kind of bipolar, don't you think? Well, so yes, he <laughs> he is. So he's a, he's an interesting character in that he is this mobster. He has a family, and then he's a total philanderer. He's like you know every woman he can get his hands on, he's getting after. Um, and he's got a violent temper. Um, some really great scenes where he just loses his mind in this. You know, whether it's someone calling him Bugsy or whether it's. Um, you know, wanting to take, you know, somebody taking money from him and it, it just, but you're right. He's bipolar. He's very prone to violent mood swings, but, the, but extremely charming at the same time. Right. Extremely, almost cartoonishly charming. Yes. And I, I'll go ahead and get into this now. That was one of my overarching things with this movie is, um, I, I told you my wife, she said it's one of her favorite gangster movies because he's kind of lovable and he, th- there's, it's a, gangster light she called it because there's this love story that's woven through it the whole way and i'll i'll save my synopsis for the end but that's definitely a valid take on that and i think it's a take a lot of people could could make yeah so one of the other in addition to uh, lucky luciano one of the other really high-ranking uh gangsters that really is kind of i don't know i don't know what would the main connection for Bugsy is mm-hmm. the character played by Ben Kingsley. Right. Meyer Lansky, who was a real, um, real Meyer Lansky was a, a real gangster. And one of the interesting things about this movie is there's a couple of characters in this movie that were, uh, kind of templates for characters that would be written into the Godfather. And, and Meyer Lansky's character is one of those. Cause he is the character that Hyman Roth from Godfather two was modeled after the Jewish character, the Jewish gangster, the sort of the intellectual gangster. he, uh, Meyer Lansky in real life did go to Israel to evade uh, tax charges, and he was deported back to America two years later. Um, he was ultimately acquitted in 1974 and wasn't shot when he got off the plane, like Hyman Roth. But, <laughs> I mean, like, and another one, you know, uh, Bugsy Siegel, Ben Siegel, was the inspiration for Mo Green in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Did you know that one? Um, 
so that's a real fascinating line throughout this whole movie. Oh well, yeah, because I mean, not to spend too much time on the Godfather, but the whole transition to Vegas. Yep. Yeah, you would expect tied that. in there. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, that'd be tied in there. Well, and Kingsley, you know, Kingsley's one of those actors that I struggle with as far as what I think about him. I mean, obviously he's, you know, extremely talented. He won Best Actor for Gandhi in '82. He was nominated for another Best Actor for House of the Sand and Fog in 03. Never yeah. heard of it. Was, wasn't he nominated for Sexy Beast also? He was also nominated for Sexy Beast. That's a good movie. Yeah, I've never seen that one. That's a good one. Um, now, uh, his, he, he started acting in 72, but he really, he didn't do Gandhi until 82. He did like, you know, I don't, a lot of TV stuff. Yeah. Like, I don't even know. But here's my thing. Um, he's been knighted. Mm-hmm. Do you think he deserves the knighthood? Well, I don't know his importance in England, so I, I can't speak to that. But I think he is a very good actor, a very um, elegant Englishman, and I think that sort of plays into it too sometimes. So I really don't have any problem with it. I, you know, I think kind of knighting civilians is kind of silly, but you know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I, yeah, I might have even said it on the pod before. But the whole joke that if like England ever had to go back to a feudal system and go to war. It'd be pretty funny because it'd be a bunch of actors like, and yeah. uh, musicians riding the horses. Elton nice. John leading the knights to battle. <laughs> uh, so, so all right. So this is pretty interesting. Um, oh, real quick too, because uh, just we'll we'll make this reference back to Ben Kingsley was also in Searching for Bobby Fisher, which is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Joe Montaigne was in that as well. Mm-hmm. But anywho, um, so I, I don't know what year this was done, but there was a poll, a history poll, about the least deserving knighthood recipients. Okay. Now, this includes musicians, actors, actresses, etc. Who do you think was number one on that list? Oh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who out there are, are even knights. Because, like, I think of the ones, like I mentioned Elton John. or Elton you know, John Sean, was ninth yeah, on the list. You know, Sean Connery. Sean Connery was, checking notes, 14th. All right. Um, is Keith Richards a knight? I don't think Keith Richards is a knight, but Mick is, Mick is? Mick is four. Okay, the fourth all right. least deserving. <laughs> yes, Mick is the fourth least deserving. And, and that's only because Keith isn't knighted. Well, and I find this interesting. Mick Jagger is the fourth least. Uh, Elton John's the ninth least deserving, but Bob Geldof's the tenth. And I don't know. And, I mean, from a music, musical standpoint, I get that, but he did do a lot from like a philanthropy standpoint sure. yeah. too. So maybe maybe his knighthood was more based on that. Yeah. All right. You still what, what, have not guessed number one. All right. All right. Count down top five. Five to one. Give it to me. Well, I, I didn't get all five because there were some I never okay. heard of. But let's just say number one is one of your favorite musicians. Sting. Nope. He's not a knight yet, though. Um. The other one with one only one name. Oh, Bono. Bono. Oh. Bono, least deserving in this poll anyway, least deserving knighthood re- recipient is Bono. We also, you mentioned Sean Connery. He's at 13th. I might have said that. Patrick Stewart is 14th, which I, you know, once again, this is a random poll. You know, it's, right, you right. Know, it's you know, not that you know, sophisticated. But, I mean, you're putting the... Captain Lacard or, or whatever, whatever his name yeah, was. Yeah, uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Oh, Jean-Luc oh, Picard over uh, James Bond. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put him over Mick Jagger and definitely not over Ben Kingsley. So Kenneth Broad is 15. I had no idea he was a knight. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he's like Mr. Shakespeare. And that's Mr. True. So it, it, that's, that's not surprising. That, that, that's true. No, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, the only ones I also wrote down, Helen Mirren is 20th, Anthony Hopkins, 21st, Michael Caine, 24th. Okay. But, but I, it was pretty, it was kind of interesting to check yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so Ben Kingsley, you know, he's, he's throughout the movie, he's kind of the, 
sponsor. I still am looking for the right word. He like every time Bugsy screws up, which he does a lot, the Luciano comes back to Kingsley's character and is like, "What do, what do I do?" It's like you, you kind of wanted to kill him the whole movie. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Kingsley bailed him out. Yeah, multiple yeah. Times. So I think Meyer Lansky is that at that level, you know, above where where Ben Siegel was, but he's not quite at the top of the food chain. But he's kind of that intermediary. He's the one that has to go out and kind of like clean up the messes, rein in the troops. He's kind of like your middle manager, right? Like mm-hmm. he's not the corporate vice president, trusted advocate. But he's, yeah, but he's out there making sure stuff gets done on the ground. And um, and you're right, like, Bugsy comes to him with problems or with discussions. And, you know, one of the great scenes in the movie, I think, is uh, in that opening sequence where he goes in and he, he kills the guy in the dry-cleaning shop. And uh, I think it was uh, the Meyer Lansky character who said he just doesn't have any respect for money. And that's going to be the theme throughout the movie because in that scene – of course, Bugsy goes in to kill this guy, but he brings him in. He says, you're trying to take the shirt off my back, and he brings in and gives him three fresh shirts that, you know, obviously are not cheap, and then caps him, spatters blood all over the place, and leaves the shirts, right? Right. Yeah, no, the, the, the theme around um, him not having a respect for money, and then there were also, there were several interesting themes throughout this movie that I, I thought were, you know, just kind of strung it together mm-hmm. and kept it going. So that, that was one of them. Um, I think another one... Is Bugsy always talking about people getting a fresh start? Everyone needs yep. a fresh start once in a while. Mm-hmm. And then there was the kind of really funny one with him, like wanting to assassinate Mussolini. Mussolini, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Which the interesting thing about that is Mussolini died in April of '45, which was over a year and a half before the Flamingo actually opened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the, in the movie before all of that happened, you know, there's there's the scene where he picks up the paper and it says that Mussolini's been executed and he is dejected. He is let down because he knew he was going to, he knew that uh, Lilith Crane was going to get to take him to to Italy and and let him assassinate Mussolini. Yeah. Yeah. The whole Lilith Crane character thing. I mean, I know it was brought in for that specific purpose and, and she was played by B. Newworth. Yeah. She's great. Cheers. Mm -hmm. You know, she said everybody would recognize her. You know, it was just kind of a fun little kind of side story that, once again, like exposed you to Bugsy's character. Because really, you know, very intriguing guy, not just in the movie, but also in real life. Yeah. And I I think that that serves really the purpose of that is to show you how, like, he had these grand dreams and grand ideas. And it wasn't just the Flamingo and this idea of Las Vegas, but it was kind of the way he operated, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And, well, he, you know... Didn't care about the the immediate result as mo- as as much as creating something that has something that's long term. Big picture, right? The big picture. Like he saw, like he in with the Mussolini thing, he saw what it meant to Jews to you know have Mussolini and Hitler stay in power, and he's like, we got to stop this for everybody, all yeah. of us Jews. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So so when he's in Hollywood and he's visiting, he's, he's introduced to Virginia Hill, mm-hmm. the Annette Benning character, and and at first. She's not real impressed and just thinks he's a playboy and he immediately goes after her and then he finds out, you know, she's not a sweet little innocent girl right. next door either. Right. Um, but one of my favorite scenes, especially in the first half of the movie, is when they're driving down the street and uh, he's with his buddy, uh, Joe Montagne's character, and they see a house and he's like, stop. And he pulls up <laughs> yeah. and it's this, you know, Hollywood mansion. And he goes in and it's, it's an opera singer. Yes. And you mentioned at the beginning him being called Bugs. He didn't like to be called Bugsy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where that first scene where he gets where called Bugs. Where you first start to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And he just goes in and he's like, you know, well, I want to buy your house. Not for sale. Um, I'll give you. A, and, he, and he's just so confident about mm-hmm. it. And just so 
It's gonna happen. You just give me your price, and he just keeps taking it up. To the Somehow guys. he's got like a hundred grand in his jacket pocket in, in the nineteen forties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's that in today's money? More than I have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I thought that was you know it, uh, a pretty funny scene, but he 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 does all these things like the one um, in the beginning where he tells the guy to to bend his knees. Yeah. Uh, before he gets thrown off the train. Right. Right. And then he has you know kind of talking back about his bipolarness again. He has a scene where and this was actually in front of um, Annette Bening's character in Virginia where he makes the guy bark like a dog and squeal like a pig. Yeah. So let's let's work up to that because. He's met Virginia, and they're having this sort of love affair, and they're, they're starting to really get into each other. And, you know, you before that, you see them together, and, you know, she comes over one night while he's watching his screen test because we didn't talk about him getting a screen test. He really wanted a screen test. And yeah, which that, is a true story. Yes. And Absolutely so a true story. He gets the screen test, and so he's got reel-to-reel in his, in his house watching it, and so she shows up. And then he's like shutting it off, like freaking out. Anyway, they talk. There's a little bit of back and forth. And then they they kiss behind the screen, you know, and it's lit and you see them silhouetted. Now, I love that scene. I love everything. I love, it was classic. I love everything about what was happening there. And not only was it beautiful, but the dialogue leading up to that, all the Hollywood dialogue leading up to that was very 1940s Hollywood style. The way they spoke to each other, the comeback, the back and forth, the language. It was all 1940s Hollywood style, and I loved it. And he was telling this story about 1940 like it was in the 1940s. Yeah. So, but then, you know, another night, and so the, the scene you're talking about, um, this guy that owes him some money, and, and it's a, he realizes that he shafted him or whatever, and they've had a big fight, and she's getting ready to leave, and... Um, she sits on the steps and she hears Bugsy in there berating this guy, making him crawl on his knees, bark like a dog, oink like a pig. It's kind of, it's a it's a brutal scene to oh, watch. Oh yeah, very, yeah. I mean, but great acting. And there's a moment where you see her and she realizes what he is, and she's kind of scared and she's kind of turned on and she's gonna stay. And they come back, they make up, and the movie progresses. Well, after that scene, the dialogue in the movie changes. I don't know if you noticed that, but it goes to more like a traditional gangster movie as opposed to like a 1940s Hollywood film. I think it's a really interesting pivot in that movie. Well, originally, uh, and I don't know how much they had filmed, but Beatty, Beatty was doing a really heavy New York accent. Yeah. And it just wasn't natural. Right. And so they ended up reshooting all those scenes with Beatty just talking like himself. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other another interesting thing is, is when Beatty got into this project... He was going back and forth between Bugsy or doing a Howard Hughes movie. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we know, you know, DiCaprio did the Howard right. Hughes movie, whatever, 10 years later, 10, 15 years later. But, you know, talking about the scene with uh, the screen test. Yes. And thinking about, you know, you could have very easily replaced Bugsy Siegel with Howard Hughes, yes. you know, watching movies. And it would it's almost the exact same style. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Yes. yes. Yeah, uh, so and, you know, and that and that goes back to Beatty too. And you know, we in the beginning we mentioned, you know, where does he really fit in in the whole kind of spectrum of Hollywood? And it's hard for me because he comes and goes as an actor, but when he, and of course, he's older now, and he had really hasn't done much in the last ten to fifteen years. Do you know why he hasn't done much? So in um, paternity lawsuits? No, no, it's it's actually not that. No, you know what's something interesting? And I heard I don't know how true this is, and you know, not that it's important or meaningful, but it's just interesting about Warren Beatty. I think I heard something several years ago 
that he was actually like a virgin until he was like 22. Oh, or something like so. that. Yeah. You know, that like, I mean, he was not, and he actually, in high school, he was offered 10 scholarships to play football. Mm. He was a real big football player in high school and decided to go to Northwestern, study liberal arts because he wanted to get into acting. He lasted a year, dropped out, moved to New York, and as the story goes. But it really wasn't until, you know, he wasn't a big playboy growing up. It wasn't until he like moved to New York and started getting into acting that he became a playboy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, don't quote me on the exact age, but it's not. He he's, he wasn't. He's he's not been like overly sexual right, his whole right, life. Right. I yeah. think that was just kind of like people started seeing him and like it kind of fell in his lap. Yeah. Well, problems. It, it, I mean, problems. problems. <laughs> right. Problems. Well, to your point, you're exactly right. Like he did. You know, he did those early movies. He did Bonnie and Glad. He did Shampoo, which you know the ladies loved, and and it was based on the character Jay Sebring, the real life uh, friend of um, Sharon Tate. Um, but you know he did he did these early movies and he, he did total flop with Ishtar yep. and then did some other good stuff. Tracy Bugsy Bullsworth. Yeah, and then he, in two that in two thousand one he did Town and Country. That was up for fifteen years. And he it was terrible and he got out of acting for fifteen years. It was so bad he's like I'm done for a while and a while was fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. And also you know by that's kind of when him and Annette Benning were kind of settling in because. I think they had their first kid, maybe 93-ish or something, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, she she continued acting. Yeah. Now, I don't think she ever experienced the same level of fame she did when she was kind of running running well. But, you know, let, let her go make some, you know, earn it. I think she's gotten to do the things she wants to do and, do, yeah. and not do the things she doesn't want. I mean, that's awesome. That's actually kind of the life you want, right, if that's the life you want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't want would to, be, to be able to slide in and out of acting and yeah, like have yeah. the money to do whatever you want in between? Yeah, I'm not going to do a movie every year. I'll do one every three or four. Or if I want to do two this year, I'll do it. But I'll do a little work, yeah. enjoy my life. Now, you know. And did you know, I mean, I think everybody knows that um, Warren Beatty's sister, Shirley MacLaine. Right. That's, obviously, yes. that's been a known fact for a long time. But did you know that he's he's still to this day, and it's probably because he didn't do anything for 15 years, at least get it out there producing it. He still has tons and tons of projects. He, matter of fact, he has a Dick Tracy sequel, mm. uh, a Bowler sequel. So is what he lazy? I, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> you know, he's getting older. Yeah, time's yeah, catching yeah. up. Yeah, you know, he might be taking a few more afternoon naps than he did, you know, a few years ago. You know, but, who's not taking afternoon naps? Who's that? Clint Eastwood. No, he's, he's just not. making movies. He's just still making movies. And what is he like? Two hundred and fifty years old. Yes. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's. Uh, we still have not done a Clint Eastwood movie. No, we need to do one for yeah, sure. It's, it's just, it's, it's hard to pick one. Yep, yep. It's hard to pick one. Um, but we've talked about it. Do you have any ideas, fans? Yeah, yeah hit, us. hit us. Hit us on that one. Uh, whichever one we pick, it's a free koozie. Yes, <laughs> koozies for everybody. Koozies for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, Annette Bening has has she's had a great career in acting. Like if you look at her filmography, The Grifters, American Beauty, um, The Kids Are All Right. That was a great movie mm -hmm. regarding Henry. American president. She was in Mars Attacks, yep. Open Range. I mean, you know, Postcards from the Edge with Shirley MacLaine. So, really well, good and, stuff. And she hasn't won an Oscar, but she's been nominated for four. Nominated four times. I mean, for The Grifters, American Beauty, Being Julia, and The Kids Are All Right. Yep. Now, what, uh, and we'll go back in with Warren Beatty and ask the same question. What, do you have a favorite in that Benny movie? Um, I think it's probably American Beauty. And I think that's, that's one of the most maligned Best Picture winners, but I really like that one. And it's a great movie, um, but I loved Regarding Henry. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. I, I just thought it was just you know something, you know, it's not you know cookie cutter, yeah. a Hollywood script. And no. of course, it's Harrison Ford when he's mm -hmm. at his peak still. Yep, I agree. Great um, movie. 
Uh, going back to Beatty, what, what's your favorite Beatty movie? Um, it's either it's either Bugsy or Dick Tracy. Honestly. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Oh, uh, yeah. my, my, I mean, without a doubt, mine's Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde. Yeah. I had Fair my, enough. Uh, this is probably a year or so ago. Uh, my daughter, who was probably 14, 15 at the time, it was just coming on some random night, you know, just mm-hmm. on AMC or something like that. And I just have to, happened to catch her in a mood where she was willing to hang out with me. Yeah. And I was like, come watch. And it was just starting. Mm-hmm. I was like, come watch this. And she hung in there for about a half an hour. But I think she went back and like finished watching it on her own, which is rare for a dad that, movie. That, well, that's good if you can get a 14 year old to do that. Right. Right. Um, no, I, I think, well, and Bonnie and Clyde, for once, you, you, for one, you, you mentioned how, you know, just kind of sexy leading man Warren Beatty mm-hmm. is. Well, he's the same thing in that. Yeah. And then Faye Dunaway is just unbelievable. But then you have like a young Gene Hackman mm-hmm. that's in there. Uh, there's a few other people that you would recognize. And it's it's just a great story. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, a great, great, great movie. Uh, all right, so at this point in the movie is when Bugsy, I forget why he has to go to Vegas, but he has to go to Vegas for something. Well, he's going to check in on this casino, and it's it's a, this dive of a place, and it, it's a dump. And it, it, if you can imagine a desert casino in the 40s that's a dump, it is exactly that. But the mob bosses are like, this is making money. You know, just, just it's making money, it's not glamorous, but they turn a profit every month. And he gets there, and uh, Virginia Hill... Um, says you know you got to do something about this and you know you you need to shut it down or you need to you know you need to to rework it and so then he ultimately does and you know they're arguing in the car on the way back from las vegas about something and he's had enough of it he stops the car gets out and uh he's like gonna walk off into the desert it looks like and he stops and he has his vision he has his epiphany and he sees what can be happening there so he runs back to the car and tells him and um she ultimately drives off and leaves uh, him and Harvey Keitel in the desert, but that's where the flamingo was born. Well, so you know how I love to call out, call out movies for their authenticity. Yes, yes. Inauthenticity? That's a big word. It is. Um, <clears throat> so for one, in, in real life, Bugsy Siegel, before he put a dollar into um, the flamingo, already owned a casino in Vegas. Uh, he owned a casino called the El Cortez, mm-hmm. which was on Fremont Street. Right. Old Vegas. Old Vegas. All right. And the city people all knew he was a gangster and they didn't treat mm-hmm. him very well. And so part of his idea, which you don't see in the movie about the Flamingo, was it was outside of city limits. So the city officials couldn't harass him anymore. Right. And that's the, and that, that's what that's really how the strip came to start. Right. right. Like that's yep. the beginning of the strip. You got it. Yeah, and so it's not just the beginning of Vegas as a gambling town, but it's the beginning of Vegas as the Strip. Right, right. Because if, if you've ever been to Vegas, you have the old downtown mm-hmm. with the like the glass covered. Now, funny thing is, I've been to Vegas tons, Strip right, up and down. I've never gone to Old Vegas. Oh, I love Old Vegas. I've never gone to Old I Vegas. I love Old Vegas. It's awesome. Now, have you ever gone to the Flamingo? I've never been to the Flamingo. I've never stayed in the Flamingo, but I probably the best Neil Diamond impersonator that I've ever seen. I saw at the Flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably heard my wife tell the story. Yes, he yes. was like five foot four, sweaty, smelled bad, but man, he could rock Sweet Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> you want one more time, Louisville? <laughs> and if you listened last week, you get that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're. I think our goal for season three is to get a Neil Diamond reference into every, every episode. episode. <laughs> Because you know, today we lost Eddie Van Halen, and Neil's not far behind. No, that's true. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly right. Um, yeah, so that, that's how that starts. And 
so this is another spot where we see this this tempestuous relationship between Bugsy and Virginia, and um, we see it throughout. Now, their chemistry on screen is amazing. The chemistry between those two, it's, it's not surprising that they got together, got married, and have lived happily ever after because you can really see it popping between them in this film. But one of the things about this movie that I would criticize that I found hard to um, continuously enjoy was just that, like you said, bipolar arc, and not just with him, but with her. They yeah. were both all over the place, very volatile. And we've seen that in movies a ton of times where a couple fights and gets back together and fights and gets back together, but it's just constant, and it's just sort of irrational at times. No, that's my biggest critique of this movie. So this movie runs 136 minutes, so a little over two hours. I would have thought it was five hours long. So it <laughs> just because because the scenes that you're talking about right there, just it, it might only be a five minute scene, but it, it kind of when we watched um, the uh, um, the Christmas movie, what was our Christmas? Oh, movie yeah, last yeah, year? yeah, yeah. The ref, the ref where it's just hearing the bickering back and forth. It, it, it might only last a minute or two on screen, but it feels like it's 10 minutes because it's just so annoying. Yeah, yeah, and Bugsy, like you said, flies off the handle. He fights with Virginia. She's kind of a badass, but she kind of wants to follow him. And then she's playing him, and she's and he's spending money nonstop and, and irrationally. Like I won't make this wall glass. Well, it's got a it's a load bearing wall. It, right. Yeah, the, the, that whole scene, and and I know they're trying to kind of establish a character, but that's not really accurate either. Right. I, I don't think because because for one, Bug, Bugsy didn't start the flamingo. Right. Okay, so the Flamingo was actually started, uh, at least the initial construction was started by a guy named Billy Wilkerson. And he owned um, the Hollywood Reporter, which was kind of a tabloid at the time. And he owned some nightclubs on the Sunset Strip in L.A. And so he wanted to make some money in Vegas. So he, he was the initial investor builder of the Flamingo. And it didn't have a name at the time or anything like that. But he quickly ran out of money. And that's when Bugsy came in with the more gangster money and kept mm -hmm. the project going. But even at its opening, there were signs at the real opening, obviously, not in the movie, that, you know, it's a Billy Wilkerson production. Because mm -hmm. they didn't want to, uh, you know, put anything related to sure, you know, you, the, the gang, the mobsters. You want to be silent about it, right? right? And that was one of the big things with the mob bosses when he was doing the screen test was like, you're not going to be an actor. We don't want people asking us questions. We don't want people looking at us. Keep it on the DL. Right, exactly. Exactly. Now, one interesting thing, though, I'm pretty sure that uh, Bugsy came up with the ultimate name for the Flamingo. Yes. Do you know why? Well, there's a couple of different reasons, a couple of different theories. One was that he, that was one of his pet names for Virginia Hill because she had long, thin legs like a fl fl Flamingo. Is that one that you found? That's the one I found, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and another one was had to do with um, he had dealings in Miami and Cuba and was fond of the Flamingos down there and, like, wanted to bring this sort of Cuban style gambling to Las Vegas and so named it the Flamingo. So one of those two stories is probably true. Well, or probably a combination. Of probably both. a combination of two. And, and that was, I think what the important thing was about building the Flamingo too, because obviously as we've already discussed, there were already casinos in Vegas and probably outside of the city limits as well. I don't think that Vegas was as barren as it projected or portrayed in the movie. Right. Right. At that time, I mean, the Hoover Dam had been open for a decade already. Mm -hmm. You know, they had water, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't a ghost town, right. you know, Dust Bowl. But I think what made the strip different from, and if you've ever been to Vegas, like perfect example, like um, 
when I was in Vegas, first, actually first time I ever went, which was almost 20 years ago, me and my buddy, we drove out to the Hoover Dam. Mm -hmm. And we stopped at a, some of those casinos yeah, yeah, way yeah. out oh, of the yeah. county. Yeah, I've, I've seen those. I've never yeah. stopped at them, but I've, I've uh, wanted some, to. Some great $3 blackjack. Yeah. Yes. And, and they still give you your beer for free. Um, but they are not elaborate. No, <laughs> not elaborate at all. And I think that that was the whole thing with the strip was because the Flamingo that Bugsy built, it did have a lot of that kind of, you know, European architecture or mm -hmm. Cuban architecture more, you know, it wasn't, it was different for that part of the country where where people had never seen that before. And even to a certain extent, it was more kind of, if you want to call it like, a, even from an American standpoint, more kind of East Coast, you know, Florida, Miami, that type of stuff versus what people in LA at that time had probably not really seen yet either or right. seen a lot of. And so I think that was the initial appeal was it just was grander. It was bigger. It was different. And, and I think part of that, part of what ties into that part of why it had to be that was this vision. And, you know, one of the, the thing that made the strip, the strip, in addition to all of that was the entertainment piece, right? right. It's going to be close enough to LA. You can get these LA performers to come out here. You can get Frank Sinatra. You can get Dean Martin. You can get, you know, who, you know, these performers that you want the people will come to see to come out here and do some shows in a little bit different area gambler's paradise we can do a little bit more here than we can do in la and uh that that vision um is another piece i think that that the movie does kind of hit on and and, fig and as you see it, it's the strip but it's also like the entertainment piece of it, not just the casino piece. Oh, well, the, the Vegas LA connections always been there. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you, you know, swingers. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, yeah it yeah. was a two and a half hour drive. We'll get to Vegas. But even on the opening night of, of the Flamingo, I mean, Clark Gable was there. Lana Turner, Cesar Romero, Romero Judy Garland, Joan Crawford. I mean, the real opening night yeah, yeah. loaded with stars, mm -hmm. even though it was an unsuccessful night. Still, and I mean, I think that was the foundation for what we're, we're talking about. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So this movie was directed by Barry Levinson and he got his Oscar for Rain Man, which also has some great Las Vegas scenes in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Levinson, um, I had totally forgotten that he directed The Natural until I was doing the research on this movie. He has not a yeah. ton of movies, but a ton of great movies. Well, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the connection because he also directed Diner. Yes. Which we've talked about before because I, I remember talking about how, you know, that's one I would love to go watch, back and watch yes. again. Yes, he uh, did Good Morning Vietnam, which is one that I think would be a fun one for the pod Have at you some ever point. seen Ten Men? He yes, Ten it's Men. a good one, yes. Ten Men's a really good one, and then Good Morning Vietnam, mm -hmm. then Rain Man, Bugsy, and Toys. I didn't care for Toys. His toys start sliding, Jimmy Hollywood, the slide's getting faster. Wag, Wag the, the dog, dog was pretty was good. Was that was pretty, pretty good. good. Wag the Dog's pretty good, and he was a writer on a lot of these movies, too. Yeah. But really, after Wag the Dog, it's like, you know, he's on the he's been on the back of a milk curtain since then. Yeah, but, you know, he's at the back end of a career that's, you know, 45 years yeah. in the making, probably. So Yeah, and I mean, he had a good little run, but, you know, that's the interesting thing about directors, mm -hmm. is, you know, we've talked about Tarantino a lot, and what's he at now, his ninth movie, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, And I mean, and how many, you know, we've, we've talked four, five, six of those were, like, awesome, Two or three of them were okay. Levinson has maybe four or five movies that are really awesome, and he has a whole bunch because he's he's actually still been working. Yeah, um, that just have not hit home at all. And we, I forget who it was, maybe De Palma or somebody like that that we were talking about with directors. 
when they get to the point of complete independent freedom mm-hmm. on their projects, they more times than not slip. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of you see more of that than you see, um, you know, the uh, Scorsese. You know that that we're the full independence and you still get really good quality product. Right. Like, um, you know, Peter Jackson's another one who's made some great movies, but once you start getting final cut, then you get that three and a half hour King Kong thing that whatever that was. Yeah. I didn't even watch it. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't last through the three and a half minute preview. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Levinson, he, he, great director for his time. Greatest director of all time or greatest directors of all time conversation. I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. No, no. But if you think about what, well, like we talk about with baseball a lot, like it's not necessarily are you the best ever, but were you the best, one of the best in your era? He yeah. definitely was one of the best in his era. Like late seventies through early nineties, he was one of the best at making movies. I yeah, think. Yeah. Well, I don't know what he even did in the late seventies because Diner was in eighty two and okay, okay. And, and, so and, eight, and Bugsy was 91. So, I mean, really, he had about, a, I mean, a barely a decade. Yeah. I mean, he's like the Terrell Davis of directors. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, but I'd trade my little life for his in of a heartbeat. Course, and, of course. You know, but I think a lot, I think he's one of those names, though, people see that name and they thought, oh, that could carry the name. Because Tarantino can carry a movie just based in Scorsese, just based on the fact that sure, they're involved. Sure. And I don't think, I think that shine on Levinson faded out pretty quickly. And by no means, like if, even if a movie came out right now with Levinson and I don't know, you know, Ryan Reynolds is in it with, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some super leading lady, Amy Adams or right, somebody. Right. Right. Would that pull you in? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, what director's, are out there now that you see, oh, this person directed a movie. I bet it's good. Christopher like, Nolan. Yep. Nolan. Scorsese still does it Scorsese for me. still does it. Tarantino, of course. Um, I still feel that way about Ridley Scott. Yeah, I think Ridley Scott still does that. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think of even, because Nolan by now is on his, like, um, seventh, eighth, you know, movie. Is there anybody that's kind of, and I know, like, there's maybe some younger directors, but who are they? Mm-hmm. I, I know they're out there, and there's probably a lot of people that are even bigger movie buffs What's than we are. What's the guy that did um, American Hustle? David O. Russell, is that his name? I think his stuff is fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And he did, um, like, he did that one. He did um, um, Silver Lines Playbook. And uh, he did The Fighter, did which the fighter, is a great yeah. movie. Um, like, he's a guy right now that if I see his name on something, I think this has potential to be really good. No, I would I would agree. I would agree. And and. And he'll, but he'll probably do the same thing. He'll probably yeah. squirt out like 10 good movies, you know, and mm-hmm. then be like, I want to have complete control. And it just, it just depends on the director. And, and Hollywood's different now than it was 10 years ago, 15 years Continuing ago. Continuing to it's, evolve. It, it really, totally evolves. Right? Like we've, we've seen, and we, you can debate this however you want to, but, you know, the new Oscar criteria with the percentage of actors and crew that have to be minorities or women that's going to tilt some of the landscape yep. like you and i are not going to be able to make that napoleon movie that one we wanted to make because it would only be dudes in it i, I already had the script wrote i know i know <laughs> we're screwed on I was, that i was in second draft of the script but I mean, well you know one thing i did forget about levinson he did his first nomination uh, for an oscar was for the best original screenplay in 1979 for injustice for all Okay. Yeah. So, so he, yeah. So maybe we'll give him a tenure. We'll give yeah. him a tenure run. Now the, the screenplay was written by a guy named James Toback. Do you know much about James Toback? I do not. 
All right, so one, and I'm just gonna get it out there right away. Um, his career ended because he was most known for using his position as a Hollywood director to sexually harass women. Okay. He would actually walk around, you know, big cities, you know, New York, LA, whatever, and he'd see an attractive woman and immediately be like, I'm a big Hollywood director. You want to do a screen test, baby? Mm -hmm. And when the Me Too movement, and it might have even been a little bit before that, but he got caught up in that, rightfully so. And so I don't think we'll hear much more from him if, you, if he's even still alive. Um, but his first, let's just call it a big movie because both of us will think it's a big movie. All right. The first big movie that he wrote was none other than 1974's starring Kenny Rogers, The Gambler. That's a huge movie. <laughs> Was that 74? I thought Got that was no later. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a different gambler. It had to be because the gambler with Kenny Rogers, I don't think that song hit until like 1980, 79, 80, something like well, that. Well, you just broke my heart. And but I it doesn't matter. I like James Toback even less now. Right. I, I like him even less now. <laughs> no, he did. He did. Because, he, you know, all right, well, maybe it's a different gambler movie. Um, all right. All right. Well, I'm wrong on that one. Won't be the first or last time. Facts are optional in this program. Facts are optional. Now, but he did also write The Pickup Artist, which, mm -hmm. okay, movie. Solid. Um, Bugsy, of course. But in 08, he um, contributed, I don't know, and maybe he wrote a lot of it, but the Tyson documentary. Oh, that was really good. Which, if, if I'm telling you, listeners, if you've never seen the Mike Tyson documentary called Tyson. Tyson. It is fantastic. <laughs> it is amazing. And it doesn't even matter if you like boxing. It is just, uh, that dude is, is his own thing, and it is he fantastic. Is most, one of the most intriguing people of our generation. Unquestionably. <laughs> Un you know, that, that, old, that old thing, like if you could have, you know, three people to dinner living or dead like tyson is always somebody i'm thinking about like maybe mike tyson because i think it'd be interesting oh oh he would be fascinating to talk to but and that was a great great production so um but the other interesting thing was when um warren Beatty approached tobik for for working on this project tobik dove like straight in and mm -hmm. he did tons and tons of research on bugsy siegel mm-hmm I mean, like, I, and I don't even know if I have this right, but like 400 pages or 4,000 pages, I don't even know. But, I mean, tons and tons of research. Well, And, and, and then he, somehow, wait, do you know this story? No, go ahead. He lost it. Oh, <laughs> He lost no. all of it. <laughs> lost all of it. So, basically, when Warren Beatty came to him and said, uh, you know, I'm ready to do the movie now, he's like, and I'm kind of making the story up, but other than the fact that he did actually lose, he's like, I, I lost all my research. And Warren Beatty was like, well, write a screenplay. Write, do it anyway. write a screenplay. You're going to remember some of it. Look. Write a screenplay. And, and Tobik thought that he was going to be the director because uh -huh. he did some directing too. And Beatty was like, nah, we're going to go in a different direction. But Tobik and, and Levinson on set were actually very close connected. They mm -hmm. worked together really well, which is, you know, I think part of the reason too that the movie worked out really well. Yeah, well, and and you know to to the to your point about him doing all this research and writing all of this stuff down, like it's still for all of the minor inaccuracies, it's pretty it's a pretty good picture of what was going on with these actual people who were doing actual things. So I I mean like you can poke holes in any movie, but it, it's not bad as far yeah. as that's concerned. No, no, yeah, no, I. I yeah, no, I, I I think it was it was done pretty well. Now we had uh, mentioned earlier um, some of the Oscar stuff. Yeah, and we talked about that early on in the podcast. 
So we we said that this was the most nominated film that year, mm-hmm. but and it was nominated for a lot of stuff, but it lost Best Picture to, to Silence of the Lambs, to Silence of the Lambs, and Best Director to Jonathan Demme for well, that film. Yes, but before we, um, so some real interesting on Best Picture. So the Best Picture ones that year were JFK, mm-hmm. which we I love, we love, I think Beauty and the Beast. It's it's a good it's a which, solid which, movie, which really is a solid good movie. movie. Um. And Prince of Tides. And, and how in the hell? Prince of Tides. <laughs> well, and, like, as I was looking through this, like, I can live with Silence of the Lambs winning Best Picture that year, because I think yeah. it actually was. It was the Best Picture. I think year. it was better than Bugsy. I, uh, I, Bugsy's probably third or fourth on the list, because yeah. JFK is better than Bugsy, and I think the I think, I think think Beauty and the Beast and Bugsy are kind of neck and neck, depending yeah. on what you like. I think that's right. I think, you know, you can certainly make a case for Warren Beatty and Bugsy, but... Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor, but that year you also had Robert De Niro for Cape Fear, which we've talked about, yep. Robin Williams for Fisher King, which we've talked about, um, and Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. Which we'll never talk we'll about. Never talk about. <laughs> we'll never talk about. <laughs> but the biggest, the biggest, most egregious Oscar situation in this was... Oh, wait, the- wait, I know where you're going with this, and this is like, you, you know, one of those, like... Everybody remembers this. Yes. From the Oscars. Yes. Everybody remembers this. Go ahead, I'll let you have it. Yes, the... the <laughs> Jack Palance yes, for City Slickers. Yeah. And, like, you've got probably the best Harvey Keitel you've ever had in terms of, like, having a lot of screen time, having the ability well, to— Well, second best. Okay. Reservoir Dogs. Yes, yes. But he's never going to be nominated for that. True. Right? Like, that's a that's an early indie film that's just kind of like, whoa, it's, what is this? So, so, so and, the, and the other people that were nominated that year for Best Actor, Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Jones and, JFK. and JFK— uh, Michael cool. Lerner for Barton Fink. And, yeah, and this is ba- best supporting actor. Supporting right? actor, Sorry. yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, um, but yeah, to Jack Palance, and, and that was a career award. C- career award, and it was. Uh, and it paid off. We got to see the one-handed push-ups. Yeah. It totally paid yeah, off. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you were, we were talking about Harvey Keitel. Did you know? You know, obviously he's been in tons of movies, and we don't have time to get into all of that right now. But he was um, actually one of his first major TV appearances was in 1966 when he played a German soldier on Hogan's Heroes. Yes, I knew that. Yes, yes. I didn't know that. And he was also on Kojak. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the, the, this is a movie that was, and we see this all the time, a movie that is well-made, great acting, great direction, geared for Oscar season, goes out, gets a ton of awards, picks up a couple, and doesn't really hit a home run. Right. Um, and we see it all the time. We do. We do. Um, Harvey Keitel, though, real quick, we talk about this a lot, and I think he's a good example. Obviously, he's not a leading man, mm-hmm. but he's not a character actor either. No, he's his what own do you, thing. I don't do even you, know. Where do you put, what bucket is he in? I, I, he's his own thing. I mean, I, I don't know, because he's he's not a character actor. Joe, Joe Montana, I think, is a character, character, actor, character actor, and he's been very successful with Criminal Minds on TV, mm-hmm. but he's I think you could still call him character actor, a very well-known character mm-hmm. actor, and I think Elliot Gould... Falls into that as well. Yeah, I think I think that's. I was getting ready to bring up Elliot Gould because I think he is probably more of a character actor. Um, you know, I mean, only. his only real leading roles were in Muppet movies. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah. Enough, yeah. yeah. Uh, as I said about Good and Bad and the Ugly, enough said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but Keitel is like he's a guy when you see he's in the movie, you're like, oh, I might need to check this out, right? Like, you have you ever seen that he's in a movie and thought, eh, I'm not watching that. No. no, no, he's not Bill Paxson. No, 
right. No, he, but but he's a guy who draws your eyes to the screen, and even if it's a small role, now you can argue he's a character actor because he does play a lot of gangstery type characters. Right. So I, I I would lean more towards that, but he's much stronger than your average character actor. And he's had I, a much I, I think career. he actually, and, and it's fitting for this movie where he got the Oscar nod. I think he's a supporting actor. Correct. You know, he's not a character actor. He's not the main actor, but he's like that great supporting actor person that is familiar, that is just, you know, does his job well, uh, not in the way, doesn't steal the show unless it's necessary for that scene. Yeah. Um, No, I I think he's, yeah, I, 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 like you said, if if you see him, if you see him on the the playbill, you're you're like, all right, right, I'm going to check this out. Like, even if I'm not that interested, I better check this out. Exactly. You mentioned Elliot Gould and um, he played Harry Greenberg. And, um, he was actually murdered by Bugsy Siegel, and Bugsy was tried and acquitted in 1942 for that murder. And we saw that murder happen in the film. And yeah, uh, he was an old friend of Bugsy that just got himself in a lot of gambling trouble. Uh-huh. You know, people were kind of chasing him down. The movie has actually a pretty fair, in a stylized way, portrayal of these events. Yeah, it does. D- do you think though that if the movie had spent a little bit more time, because we talked about how long it is, if it had spent a little bit more time, like showing a little bit of the trial of Bugsy Siegel for the murder of Harry Greenberg and a little bit less of the time on Bugsy spending another million on this um, Flamingo Hotel and Casino that it might have been a better movie? Like, because we get we get exhausted with that at the end. Totally. And, like, if we had a little bit of, like, if we had a 15-minute situation drama? where you see him under siege. Kind of like, like when Snoop Dogg happened to Snoop Dogg yeah, in the 90s. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I, it, it's something I thought about, like as I was researching it and thinking about that. Like that, it, it mentioned it, but it glossed over it a little bit. Like the real legal. Well, troubles. and, and the, the screenplay that I mentioned earlier that that Tobik finally settled on was three and a half hours. Yeah. So I mean, they they shaved, which is not abnormal. No, not, not at abnormal all. at all. Um, so maybe you know, who knows? Maybe it was in that screenplay and it just got cut for other reasons. I think where it could have been disruptive, Jim is in the, the stylistic rhythm of the mm-hmm. movie. Perhaps, yeah, because it, it would not... But you could have done stylized courtroom scenes. You totally could have done that. But, yeah, but you have the big flash photographer yeah, guy absolutely. with the gigantic bulb. You got the sketch artist uh, over there, the stenographer pounding away <laughs> on the <laughs> right. 60s. Right, right. Your, your judge would be some, like, old burly dude. Yeah, yeah. You play yeah. by Ned Beatty. Of course. <laughs> Ned Beatty. <laughs> or Fred Gwynn. Oh, wait, that's my cousin Vinny. Um... Yeah, but anyway, just something I thought about. Um, you know, another historical thing that I want to go back to for, for a quick second is we talked about Virginia Hill, and we got introduced to her, and we didn't get a lot of her backstory um, other than we knew that she was the boyfriend of Joey A., another mobster. And in real life, Virginia Hill was born in Alabama and moved to Chicago, and while she was in Chicago, she worked for a while as a prostitute and then got involved with the mob a little bit and became a courier. And she became a very trusted courier of the mob. And they would have her sending messages from one gangster to another. And then within that, she got involved romantically with one mobster. And then ultimately, she kind of got passed around amongst the gangsters as, like, their lady of the night. And so 
you know, we touch on this a little bit in the movie because uh, Bugsy knows that she's been with a lot of guys and that there's a lot of fight about that. But we, do, but it doesn't really get into like her deep seated past of what she was within the mob and what her real past was. And you know, in real life, when Bugsy was shot, she took an unscheduled trip to Paris four days before he was killed. And there are some theories that she was tipped off on the fact that he was about to be whacked and got out of town. She later came back. She worked for a while doing stuff. Um, she had. I think she ended up in Austria. Or she ended like up that. in Austria. She ended up in some legal trouble, um, and I think she was going to be acquitted for some sort of a tax evasion or something like that. And that's when she went to Austria before all the stuff went down. And she died in Austria of killed a drug, herself. Drug overdose. It killed herself of a drug overdose. But there's some questions as to whether or not she actually did it, or whether there was some. Um, other influences involved in that, as with all mafia deaths. Right. Well, and that's why they're the mafia. They're good at that kind of stuff. <laughs> Very good at that. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you know. But fascinating character, fascinating Absolutely life. Fascinating. Well, you know, the other, the, it, and, and I don't think we ever came back to kind of the plot that led up to that, but basically, you know, once we've, we've mentioned it several times, we mentioned it with like putting the window in the, in the brick wall and all that kind of stuff but basically as Bugsy's building the the Flamingo I think his initial budget was like two million and eventually it ended up being six million and of course all the 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 financiers is that how you say it yeah uh financiers is it the ors and ers uh financiers right financiers there you go yeah I knew it was something like that the gangsters yes probably been easier for the gangsters with the cash (laughs) the gangsters with the money um, and, and, and Bugsy's having to go around and like try to get more and more and more. And eventually, and once going back to also what we were talking about, that really Bugsy didn't care about the money. He cared about the vision. Right. And he ended up selling all of his shares in the Flamingo to keep financing it so he could get to the point of actually opening the casino. He oversold his shares too. Oversold. Like he said, I'll sell you a hundred shares. And then by the time it's all said and done, he's, he's oversold like five times what he actually has or something. Right, so here we get to December 26th, 1946, mm-hmm. the official opening of the Flamingo. Mm-hmm. So a couple different things So between what happened in real life and what happened in the movie. So number one, right before in the movie, right before the opening, he realizes that Virginia stole $2 million, which in real life she actually stole $2.5 million. Whatever. And the, uh, the, the money guys, mm-hmm. the gangsters thought that Bugsy was in on it. Yep. I personally don't think he was. Uh, no, I don't think he was either. I don't think he was. I have no evidence to prove that, but I think, once again, not caring about money, being the visionary, I think she robbed him blind. Mm-hmm. And especially based on her history, no surprise there. Um, ironically, in the movie, it's pouring down rain on opening night mm-hmm. in December in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much rain Vegas gets on an annual basis? It is not much. They average 4.2 inches a year. And in that scene, it probably rains 12 inches. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it is like a Miami monsoon. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Hurricane Delta is on its All way right. to Vegas somehow. Um, so they have a bad opening night, which, which why would you open the night after Christmas? Well, that was one of the things that the, the mob bosses asked him. Like, why would you open on Christmas? And I have no idea. I, I don't know. All it, right. It seems and, like and, a... and I think that the thing with visionaries 
is they they are really good at like you know that kind of big picture vision and they can drive to that big picture but it's the little details like right, that right. that they don't think about or skip over or don't think that are important that ultimately like digs three more feet into the mm-hmm. grave yep yep yeah because why would you open that mm-hmm. um but um first night was bad um and based on the movie they call him back to his home in LA. They mm-hmm. don't really give a time frame, but they make it seem like it's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. P- pretty quick, and he gets killed. Right. And 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 that was a very stylized um, assassination, too, because he was watching his screen test again by himself. And it, it's an interesting way that that goes out with him watching himself on the screen as he gets shot. And it's a very, very, um, very artistic final sequence there. But in real life, he was actually there sitting on the couch with another friend he was reading the la times and he took two shots to the head and that was it it right. wasn't this explosive dramatic situation it was actually a real nice neat and tidy mob hit well and um the kingsley character you know they had actually been wanting to kill uh, luciano had been wanting to kill bugsy probably six months or so yes been wanting to for a long time because of all the money that he was wasting and kingsley's character said hey let's at least wait until and see what happens when it opens mm-hmm. so the movie makes portrays it as bad opening let's kill bugsy that's not really what happened in real life mm-hmm. what happened in real life was it was a bad opening mm-hmm. that's not contested but the, the hotel wasn't and casino wasn't complete yet either you know, it was, I think Bugsy was trying to rush this opening at Christmas, which once again doesn't make any sense. So they shut down after the opening right around Christmas and they reopen in March. It's still not done. The hotel's still not completely done, but they reopen in March and all, like immediately turn like a quarter million dollar profit. Mm-hmm. And so you think like in real life, they would have let Bugsy survive, but they don't. And they actually, when they kill Bugsy, is actually in June. Mm-hmm. So six months after the opening is when they actually go to his L.A. home and, and kill him. So a little difference between the movie and what happened in real life. But I'm glad they didn't tell that story in the movie because that would have been another 20 minutes, which right. only five minutes of it would have been interesting. Right. And you know why they turned such a big profit in March, right? Uh, the Kentucky Derby? NCAA oh, tournament. NCAA tournament. Right. Yes. Like, they should have opened for March Madness anyway. Like, what are you thinking? Like, that's... Who won that year? Was that, was that like San Francisco? Probably. Or like, yeah. yeah. I don't even know who won in March. But... It did set the president for precedent for uh, March Madness. Yes. But no, they, you know, so, and of course, you know, at the end of the movie, they talk about, you know, Virginia killed herself mm-hmm. and that the $6 million investment in the Flamingo is now worth $100 billion. Um, and so, once again, what we were saying about how this is kind of, you know, an origin story yeah. of the opening of the Vegas Strip, that to me is the most, that, that to me is more compelling than everything else that we've talked about as far as the acting, the cinematography, the the costumes, whatever. I think what makes this movie really, really good is just this is how Vegas started. Yes. Whether you like Vegas or not, Vegas is one of the few cities in the world and definitely one of the few cities in America that is 100% complete, unique. You're not going to find that anywhere else. It is absolutely its own thing. That is exactly right. Right, and you're not going there for anything other than going to Vegas. Right, <laughs> right, right. Now the Raiders are there now. Some people might go there for Raiders games. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to happen. But I mean, still, you're. But going otherwise, there for like you're going at yeah, yeah. I mean, like 
you might use it as a jumping off point for something else, but you're going just, okay, well, let's go to Vegas for a little while. Right. Let's, and, and, and nobody, anybody that says that they like spending five days in Vegas is not somebody that I want to spend a lot of time with. I mean, yeah. I got like a three-day Vegas max. Yeah, right, right. Every, three to four-day Vegas max. Every normal American is like three to four. Like long weekend in Vegas is plenty. Mm-hmm. Like if you're like, I'm going to go stay two weeks in Vegas, then – you, you, you're a degenerate or um, you really like golf or like you like free, you like prostitute. Like, like there's things you like. Yeah, yeah. The gambling, the whatever. Yeah. yeah there's tons of it. Right. Um, all right. So the whole 20 doors took turns. Yeah. Doing handstands on the carpet. 20 doors took turns doing handstands on the carpet. Did you get anything out of that? So that to me, that was him teaching himself to enunciate and so that was kind of like what he did like like thinking he was going to try to be a movie star and i think that like when and he would do that like after he killed somebody or you know something really bad had happened and that was just kind of his go back to recenter himself i'm going to just say this over and over i'm going to practice this and that's what i took from that well in real life bugsy carried a thesaurus with him everywhere he went Mm -hmm. and every morning he would write down five words and put them on his mirror, five words from the thesaurus that he didn't know, and tried to use them in conversations during the I day. See. Which I know people do that. That's right. actually not that's actually a good habit. Yes. But yes, he was very conscientious and concerned with his vocabulary and the way he articulated himself. And you kind of use that as kind of as as, as sinal, you know, coming back C- to centering center, point, yeah. Centering point. Yeah, but I, you know, I thought that was just you know once again one of those interesting things that we saw throughout this movie. You know, whether it was him being bipolar, him talking about having a second chance, him not respecting money, the character of Bugsy in a, in and of itself, uh, very unique, interesting character. And I and I really think, I mean, if you think of who else could have played this character in the early '90s. I don't think anybody could have played better I, than Wormy. I agree with that. Like because nobody else was quite as handsome and charismatic enough um, in that style. Like as 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 glamorous as he. And we is. have lots of guys that could pull that off today. Yes. You got all the Ryans. Yeah. You got um, oh, who's the American sniper guy? Oh yeah. Um, that was in Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. You know there there's you know I, and which is interesting because for a lot of our lives the the leading men in Hollywood weren't like that Mm -hmm. i mean and it actually probably hurted warren Beatty's career but i mean you know for like the 70s 80s 90s it was your de niro's your pacino's even in your action with stallone and schwarzenegger there wasn't a lot of like you know richard gear yes he would fall into that and you could do it with robert redford robert redford was already starting to get old by then yeah but he would fall into that too i would agree but we didn't we kind of went through a period in, in film that lasted a pretty long time without that stereotypical, tall, handsome, charming, mm-hmm. you know, Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca yeah, type guy. Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, I agree with that. And and I think that I totally agree with what you're saying because at that time, um, he was the right guy for that film. And just looking back at, like, who was nominated for Best Actor that year? Anthony Hopkins? No. Uh, Robin Williams? That's not going to play. Nick Nolte? No. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's and De Niro and even De Niro. supporting actors with Tommy Lee Jones. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, you just Harrison Ford pulled it off. Yep. 
Um, Clint Eastwood was past that at that point. Yeah, Harrison Ford at that point could have done that. Harrison Ford could have, yeah, Harrison Ford could have done that in in 91. But yeah, there there weren't, that wasn't the, uh, the big thing. Which, again, is what makes that movie so great is because you had the right guy in the right type of movie Mm -hmm. to pull it all together. Yep, yep, I totally agree. Pull it all together. Now, were there any scenes in this movie that you watch and you're like oh yeah i love that scene or that was kind of funny or that was awesome well you know there were a lot of them i mean um specifically I, trying to pull one out and- i i love the scene where he goes to virginia's house and it's after he's seen her out with a dude and he's talking to her and she, he sees this dude lounging in her chair like in a robe and he throws him out the window and she's like that's my brother yeah yeah that was a good one yeah no that was and he's great. like oh i'll buy you a cadillac and she's like don't sell out so cheap <laughs> yeah no that's a great yeah, scene that was a great scene and you, and you had little episodes like that that were just really ex- <clears throat> explosive and and, and and interesting that brought us back to like the once again the bipolar character yeah, that is yeah. Bugsy Siegel yeah and just I, I you know we and we mentioned this scene earlier but I mean I love the op when he buys the house from the yeah, opera singer yeah scene. I love that that's I, a great that, great I scene I thought that was great um, I was not a big fan of him always justifying himself back to the mob scenes yeah because it's like the mob guys are pretty smart it's like when are they gonna access guy that became a little they, exhausting why are they letting on. them still get away with this yeah, stuff that, that became uh, exhausting. Vito Corleone would not let this would not no. allow this <laughs> in his family <laughs> you know no Tessio's going to whack you if that happens <laughs> oh, yeah right so yeah um no, a couple other just just thoughts and finishing stuff up uh number one I always appreciate, I mentioned when uh, Annette Bening lit up her cigarette early on, you watch her in this movie, I always appreciate someone who properly smokes their cigarette as an actor. We're re-watching The Americans, and Carrie Russell's a terrible on-screen smoker because she just sucks a little in and then blows it out. Annette Bening's really smoking that cigarette, so I always appreciate that on film. Gotta go in all, all in. All in. Um, also, man, it's been a while since I've heard anybody use the word broad as many times as we heard it in this movie. Oh, yeah. I kind of love it. I know we can't say that anymore, but no, it was kind of awesome. No, you can't say that. But, uh, it, yeah. No, well, and that was the thing. I think they did a good job kind of, you know, aligning the script to that era. Oh, yeah. Because you'll see that a lot of times when people with period pieces, and I would consider this a period piece. Sure. You know, 50 years, uh, you know, give or take, after, after the timing of the movie, where... You're just like that's not how they talked back then. I forget which. I, I was watching a movie uh, a few months ago where they, or maybe it was a show on Netflix or something, and and they said something, and I was like, they would never have said that. Yeah. Back yeah, then. Yeah. And, you know, so at least they were uh, genuine. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. I think it was, it was right on for at least what I know of that era and and that kind of thing. All right. So, are anything else before we start the wrap up? No. Let's get to it. All right. Let's get to it. When would you watch this movie again? Um. Not in a hurry. I would not watch it like, yeah, no, I'm I'm good for a few years. I would watch it again, but I don't want to watch it immediately or anything like that. No, I, I right time and place. If, I mean, if it popped on on a rainy, I, I always use the rainy Saturday yeah. afternoon analogy. I'd stick with it. No, I'd probably move to something else. It, well, it depends on what's what going. else is what, what else is on. Yeah, what's else, what else is on? I, I would I would search it, but I might stick with it because having watched it again recently, there were enough things I liked about it that I feel like I might get some other stuff layered out of it watching it again. But I don't want to dedicate two and a half hours to it again. Well, and I think, too, this is one of those movies that, like, um, I would enjoy in the background. Yeah. 
like, but just sitting there focused on every minute and every word of dialogue, it, it, it was draining. Yeah, yeah. But if it was in the background while I was like cooking dinner or something like sure. that, yeah, no problem because it's the style of it in and of itself, and the score in and of itself is, you know, is pretty good. Yeah. But I will, I will say this, um, Jim. This movie was free on Amazon Prime. It was. Free. It was. It was. Is this the first movie? Now, have we caught it one on Netflix yet? Now, I know some. I know a lot of the movies that we've done have been on Netflix, but maybe not necessarily at the time we've been doing them. And um, and, I, and I know you pay subscriptions too, so you know. But most of the movies that we do, remember the season one when I was actually ordering or buying the DVDs. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Um, and, uh, but well, this was free on Amazon. I think that tells you a little bit. Well, maybe, but we've done some other ones that have, that I've not had to pay for. Like I, I think the first one we did, Cape Fear, I think that one was free on uh, either Netflix or Amazon. Um, uh, but but to your point, like it's not one that people are seeking out. But right. that's exactly what this podcast is about. True, is about really good movies that are kind of forgotten. And is it still good? Yeah, this one's still pretty good. So that said, what would you do as a final grade on this one? B minus. B minus. B minus. Okay. I'm solid B, um, and I, I'm, I toyed around with a B plus, but the, the sort of exhausting loop of battling with the gangsters, coming back and groveling for money, the up-and-down relationship with um, Virginia that, that kind of exhausts me a little bit with both of them uh, drags it down. But as far as acting, as far as you know, a style piece, it's really good, and it's, I think it's a solid B to me. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I never questioned whether it was going to be a C or not. I, I was definitely going to give it a B, and I think I, I, I never really considered it a B plus. And you know what? And you know, I have to admit, Jim, we've had to take a, we've taken a pretty long break. Yep. Um, I haven't graded a movie because we didn't really grade pulp and um, yeah, right, for right. us because we all know their A's. We all know their A's. Um, so I just kind of, I enjoyed it. Well, everything that we said, everything that we said, except there were just parts where I was just like, please move on. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's where I ended up at the B minus. Now with that said, if you've never seen this movie before, it's worth the watch. Or if you haven't seen it in a long time, it's worth the watch. It's worth a comeback to. If the you pl- love Las Vegas, it's a, it's worth the it's watch. It's worth the watch. All right. So grade is in, um, and, we're going to wrap this, but before we do, a couple of things. We want to do a Halloween movie. We've talked about that a little bit, so we're going to try to turn it pretty quickly and get another one in before Halloween. Yes. And we've got a couple of things on the on the block that we're talking about. One is, is we, we wonder if it was ever good, but we're talking about it. Um, so we got that coming up. Also, we mentioned it mid-podcast. We are recording on the day that we lost one of our rock gods, Eddie Van Halen. So uh, pour one out for Eddie. Listen to 1984 or Van Halen 1 if you get a chance. He is the guy who made me want to play guitar. Well, and um, as a kid, I owned, this was probably my most complete collection, but I had the first seven Van Halen albums with David Lee Roth before Sammy showed up all on cassette tapes. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Did Uh, you ever see Van Halen? 
I did. I saw them actually on their most, uh, I, I think it was their most recent, but actually when uh, David Lee Roth came joined back. and they only lasted like six or seven shows. Did before. you see them in Cincinnati? No, here in Louisville. Oh, here. Okay. Yeah. Here at the Yum Center. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw and them. They, in, and they were, they were, they were great. And you know, that's the only time I've ever seen them. So was, I saw them in 95 with Hagar and I think Hagar's a little maligned. I think they were good with Hagar. I think he's a guy who has his head on his shoulders and pretty good, but uh, Eddie had just had hip surgery and come back and. He, he wasn't bouncing around all over the stage, but boy, he tore it up. Well, and they were, you know, that that's the great thing about Eddie Van Halen because I, I don't think you're going to see this in rock again. And, and if you think rock history, he essentially had two bands with between him and Alex and, and Michael um, that were very unique with a different sound, but still a very foundational Van Halen sound mm-hmm. that were extremely successful. Yes. Now I'm a much more David Lee Roth guy than I a Sammy prefer guy. David Lee Roth to Sammy, but I like Sammy. I like Sammy, but I um, but you know it's I mean that that just kind of goes to his brilliance as mm-hmm. a composer. Yeah. That that they that you know they were able to continue that and and, and his willingness to accept that Sammy was a little bit different and mm-hmm. take that in and let that you know explore that and be like hey this is good too. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were great and and very influential. It, very influential. They. They kind of coming out of the '70s and and uh, into the '80s. They sort of were one of the driving forces in the change of what rock and pop music was at that point. No, definitely, definitely a transition, and and you could almost even say, you know, I think they added another ten years to hard rock. Yeah, yeah. Because really, coming the the coming out of the '60s and coming in the '70s with like Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and bands like that. And then all of a sudden, in the late '70s, like on the pop charts, you're getting the Bee Gees, and you're getting well, you had then, a lot and, of disco, and then you hit new wave and when you hit MTV. Disco, you hit new wave. You have Michael Jackson coming in with pop, and and I like all that kind of music. I too. love it. I, I like all kinds of music, but Van Halen kind of kept hard rock alive. They were the cornerstone to the first, the first like part of the '80s, first half of the '80s, almost Absolutely. the whole '80s. Were the cornerstone. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so, until you got to like Bon Jovi and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Um, we, we went on a little bit about that, but uh, yeah. we love music and love rock and roll, so we lost a, uh, an icon today. So yeah. um, Anyway, so up next for us, we got another, another podcast coming up, and we'll do a, a Halloween movie. Um, keep listening, watching, rating, reviewing, subscribing. We love doing this. We have had a crazy summer, have not had as much time to do it as we want to, but really, really ready to get back after it. Uh, Nate, you got anything else? Nope. R.I.P. R- R- Eddie. R.I.P. Eddie. See you next time on Is That Movie Still Good?